Praise the Lord for that. We are in Acts chapter 17 for part two of the message. I brought part one in evangelism episodes. Last week was part one. The true and living God is knowable. From Acts chapter 17, we looked then at verses 16 to 23, and we'll read uh, to give the context for tonight as well. Um, But uh, it basically taught that Paul was uh, really a great example of a believer with a passionate heart for lost souls and how he wanted to see folks come to Christ. And we, as God's people, should have that very same heart. We learned last week, in order to be used of God in evangelism, to be an evangelist, to be a soul winner, to be a witness. I must, you must, intentionally avail ourselves to him. In other words, just recognize, I am a witness. Whether I'm a faithful witness or not, is yet to be seen possibly in any given situation, but I am a witness. I also need to be soul conscious. I need to be alert to lost people around me. And thirdly, I need to be willing to stand alone, if that's required, for the sake of the gospel. This evening is part two of this message from Acts chapter 17. To pick up the context, let's go ahead and read again verses 16 to 23 that we saw last week, and then we'll pick up through the end of the chapter 4 this evening. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the whole city given to idolatry, or better yet, the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans, that is, those who lived for the flesh, and of the Stoics, that is, those who were disciplined legalists, encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine of which thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are quite religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And this evening, verse 24 through 34, uh, we'll cover. God, who made the world and all things in it, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds or boundaries of their habitation. In other words, God created everyone. He created the earth. He set us in a certain time and in a certain location according to his will. That's in essence, what verse 26 is saying, that they should seek the Lord, if perhaps they might feel after him and find him, though he is not very far from every one of us. 
for in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone carved by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, concerning which he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he has raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Nevertheless, certain men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This evening's part two in the true and living God is knowable. America is post-Christian in our culture, and when that is said, and you've heard others say it, it does not mean that for the first 200 or so years of our, of our culture, everyone was blood-bought, everyone was a believer, and the like. No, it simply means that the first majority of the history of our culture, we followed a Judeo-Christian ethic, meaning we, our orientation and our social mores uh, were Judeo-Christian, uh, Old and New Testament in their orientation. Now, biblical exposure and biblical toleration uh, is, is hardly even present. Biblical understanding is barely tolerated. In fact, it's usually mocked and sometimes with a great measure of hostility. That is our culture today. Because of this, I can't assume, uh, when I speak to somebody in the marketplace, a co-worker, a, well, I should assume a co-worker is saved, <laughs> but you should not assume that a co-worker, a classmate, a neighbor knows anything about the things of the Lord. And so what there may need to be is a common frame of reference from which to work. And so this evening, and in Acts chapter 17, you see a lot of apologetics, giving a reason behind why we believe. And the Apostle Paul did that. And so, with some people, and with many people in our culture, I need to lay groundwork regarding basic biblical truths, yet without using Scripture, possibly. That is not to say Scripture is inadequate. In fact, the Word of God says we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. First Peter uh, chapter 2, I think. You can check me on that. Chapter 1 or chapter 2. So we're born again by believing Scripture. But there are some in our culture that if you start sharing actual scriptural text immediately, you might as well be speaking a foreign language. Uh, really, even 50 years ago, uh, if you were to talk to me uh, about being born again, about uh, the forgiveness of sin, and I would have thought, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm an okay person and, uh, uh, and the like. And so even much more so in our day today. So Acts chapter 17, 24 to 34, basically apologetics 101. The first point. I want us to consider is if we're going to share with the lost we must share that God is that God is his existence and the apostle Paul did that 
And uh, he didn't try to prove the existence of God in an empirical way, in a laboratory, but just simply states it. Now, folks, we need to know from the very beginning here that we're not going to logically convince someone into a relationship with the Lord. That is only and always by faith. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is. That is, God exists and that he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. So the Athenians didn't have a problem with believing something. Their problem was they believed everything <laughs> to the unknown God. And, uh, and then apply, apply that idea, that concept, to all kinds of carved images and idols and philosophies and beliefs and, and the like. You come to the Lord by faith, but it's not blind faith. It's faith, faith on substance, uh, and uh, you can do so. You can demonstrate, you can demonstrate the existence of God philosophically. And, and again, uh, I, I reiterate, that's not to say that this is the best way to do it, but it might be the only avenue you have with somebody who says, I'm an atheist. Do not, if God is and he exists, you ought to be able to demonstrate his existence other than using the Bible. And in fact, one can to someone who truly will want to know. First of all, I'm going to go this very quickly because I've shared this before. This is old information, uh, but just so that you'll have it right there in your notes, you'll have it in one package. The ontological argument, God is incomprehensible. This argument asserts that man is finite, meaning we're limited in our knowledge, we're limited in our experience. And Humans are, are finite, but God has placed eternity in the heart of man, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And in fact, we understand infinity, we understand the infinite, because we look at the number line. And everyone logically can see, if you start at zero and you go in either direction, you can go for how long? Forever. You can go for infinity, because you can always add one more. Therefore, because we do have a concept of the infinite and God is infinite and he is incomprehensible, it follows that the infinite must have caused that idea to come about. Think about it this way. You can't think of not existing because just the activity of thinking, okay, I'm going to think about not ever having existed. Just doing that I'm giving thought to the fact that I do exist, if you follow that. And we can't think of there not being infinity because there is infinity. And by virtue of there being infinity, that must have been given to us by the infinite. Uh, or else we couldn't possibly have thought about that concept. If there wasn't such a concept, we couldn't think about that concept. And so, because there is, the ontological argument is... God is incomprehensible. We have a concept of infinity. Therefore, uh, we must have received that from outside of us. Secondly, the cosmological argument. Probably my favorite argument. And it's that there, it argues for cause. Uh, since everything and anything exists, is here and it, it exists, uh, by definition, it must have had a predecessor. It must have had a forerunner in order to have gotten here. In fact, uh, I was in my physical therapy appointment. I've been doing that for uh, a couple of months, which is why I'm so spry and nimble these days. 
uh, as long as I'm not going up and down stairs. I don't want to show off too much. <laughs> um, but uh, someone talked, mentioned something uh, uh, about weights and, uh, and forces that you put on your body. And you're going to physical therapy. That's, that's germane to that. And somehow it came up uh, about uh, Newton's first law of thermodynamics, the, the law of the conservation of mass. And boy, as soon as, as soon as that, I mean, my, I, you're, you're in my wheelhouse now. Well, they didn't know they were in my wheelhouse. And I didn't let on. I just kind of let them talk and everything. I said, uh, you know, that, that means that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. But yet we have matter. Hmm. And I'm just speaking out loud. Uh, and the place, it was very quiet. Everybody was doing their physical therapy exercises. Uh, and it was a room about the size of the platform here, maybe. And I'm just talking, and I'm saying, now, you know, uh, matter exists, doesn't it? Yeah, we see each other. We see what, things actually are here. And yet, matter and energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Ergo, there had to have been a starting point, didn't there? And then I went ahead and started answering my own speculative thoughts. But... How did that all happen if it's by evolution? I'm just talking. And everybody, nobody else is saying anything. <laughs> My therapist is thinking, okay, we get it, we get it. Why don't you, you know. I said, uh, it had to have been that, that the matter was dropped here, maybe by an alien. But where did the alien come from? So that doesn't work. Uh, and I went on to talk about, and how can evolution be right? And I'm just saying this out loud. Really, I'm not being obnoxious. I'm being a little bit playful during the time, but everybody's following the argument. And I'm saying, and I said, uh, but evolution wouldn't make sense either, now would it? Because not only did Newton uh, uh, come up with the idea and the law, turn into a scientific law of the conservation of matter, uh, but then he went on to actually say, and everything is heading toward disorder, yet evolution says everything was all chaotic and move toward order. Now that would also break a, a scientific law which has never been broken and cannot be broken. Therefore, uh, it would seem to me, and I'm just talking to myself out loud with everybody listening in, it would seem to me that God must exist. But then, that being the case, scientists are sure intelligent, educated people. Why would they, knowing all of these things that I've just said, and these are scientific law, why would they make such a, a huge mistake and deny it and say that evolution is spontaneous generation and it headed from disorder to order going against both of those scientific laws. Maybe it's because folks don't want to answer to this creator, this all-powerful, eternal God. And in fact, men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Well, I had a captive audience I'm guessing none of them are ever going to introduce such a subject again. <laughs> but I had, it was a blessing for me to be able to do that. And again, it sounds a little bit showboatish as I'm, t as I'm relating it to you. But it really, it really was not. It was, a, uh, it was a, a serious moment of speaking truth to an audience. Not a hostile audience at all. But uh, one that I didn't know if in fact uh, they, they believed. And so, the cosmological argument says every effect has to have a cause, an antecedent cause, something which caused that effects. By definition, God is infinite. He's outside of time, space, and matter. Therefore, he had to have caused 
time, space, and matter. In fact, in one verse, in the beginning, time, God created space, the heavens and the earth matter. Y'all see? In one verse, the existence of God, that God is, is demonstrated. Thirdly, the teleological argument. God is purposeful. There is not randomness in the universe. There is intentional design, and you see it everywhere. The, sw- the salmon can't not swim upstream and lay eggs. The salmon doesn't decide to. The salmon must do that. It's instinct. You know, but the bear also has an instinct. He must go to the river and catch salmon as they're jumping up the little spillways and all. And so we see intentional design. Uh, if, if the bear wasn't doing that, we'd be overrun with salmon. If the salmon didn't do that, the bear would have become extinct already. Intentional design. Again, you can't logically bring someone into the kingdom, but you can awaken the understanding of that God is by using philosophical arguments. Secondly, we must share then not only that God is, but who God is. And that's really where Paul began in this argument uh, that is with the nature of God. Two or three things I'd like to share about that. Verse 24 tells us that God is eternal. If you look at verse 24, very first verse we considered this evening, God who made the world and all things in it, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples, it intimates the pre-existence, the eternality of God. And the doctrine of eternality is also one of infinity. Uh, That is, it goes on and goes on. Uh, It Just like the number line doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. It just goes on and on and on for infinity. So too, in, uh, in some type of analogy, is the existence of God. He is eternal. He is all, God is also spirit, meaning uh, in his um, nature, his essential nature, God is spirit. And Jesus taught that in John chapter 4. Jesus came uh, and, and dressed himself in humanity, put on the garment, the covering of human flesh and bones and blood to achieve the purpose for why, why he came. But God is spirit. And God is personal Um, He's not distant and detached. If he were, we could not know him. And that's the idea of verse 27. If you'll notice in verse 27 and verse 28, uh, that uh, they should seek the Lord, that they can feel after him and find him. For in him we live and move and have our being. That is, our physical lives come, emanate from him. And so God is personal. It is not a religion. It is a relationship. And folks, all other uh, belief systems, it's a religion. That is, it's an attempt to do good enough, to do enough, to, to uh, somehow appease God, somehow uh, uh, enter into a relationship. Only biblical Christianity, only in all the history of the world, is it God came to you. Instead of you trying to ascend uh, to God. You have a profoundly unique relationship only found in Christ, and the world needs to know of this. So that is who God is. Thirdly, we must share with the lost the function of God, that is, what God has done. Okay, we know that He is, we know who He is, 
And now what has he done? Well, Scripture is crystal clear on this. He's the creator. That's important. And it talks about it right here, that of one race, uh, uh, excuse me, of one blood. He's created all, uh, all that we uh, all of mankind, and he, verse 26, and he placed them in a certain time period, in a certain location. And so because you are a 21st century American living in the breadbasket of the world uh, with the most affluent uh, uh, economic system in the history of the world, that is for, for the whole demographic, every, 99% of Americans are rich compared to the rest of, the, uh, of, of world history all the billions of people. Because you are in that situation, don't feel guilty. Verse 26 says, God has placed you here at this time, in this location, with the blessings that you have. But don't presume that it's because of how, uh, how valuable you are to God, because you were a lost sinner before coming to Christ. But uh, it does make you and me very accountable uh, to the Lord for all of these blessings. And so, he is the creator. Secondly, about what God has done, he's the redeemer. He, uh, and that's the thrust of the book of Acts, that God is the redeemer, the Lord Jesus. God who became man uh, and lived among us, summarized in, uh, in 2 Corinthians five nineteen. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So he has brought those in the world to himself who have believed. And of course, we understand that saving faith is, the, is that which uh, uh, establishes the relationship. And he has now called us, committed us, unto sharing that message, the word of reconciliation with this lost world. So he is the creator, he's the redeemer, and he is equally the judge, the soon returning judge. And so uh, the good news of the gospel is good news if you first hear the bad news. That is because you have sinned against the eternal, uh, thrice holy, infinitely perfect God, there is a payday coming as... um, as R.G. Lee would say, payday someday. Someday there is a payday coming. And so what's the message? Well, if you want to be uh, uh, forgiven by the judge, then you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. Notice in verse 30, it says that the lost in that day were ignorant, literally without knowledge. The Athenians thought they had the corner of knowledge. You've heard of the likes of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. What did it, what did it say? Morons, yeah, Prince's Bride. Morons, that's right. Paul, uh, uh, maybe, maybe they got that line from Acts chapter 17, I don't know, because Paul said, they're ignorant. Your philosophers are without knowledge. You think they have great knowledge in Greece the center of intellectualism. They were morons, even though you think they're part of the intelligentsia. God says they were ignorant because they didn't know God. They put an idol to the unknown God, an altar to the unknown God. He's out there somewhere or whatever, or it's out there somewhere. Paul said, 
I can tell you that he is, who he is, and what he has done. And then finally, we must share the response to God. That is, who will God receive? Verse 30 and 31 make it clear that he's called mankind to repent and believe. Repent from sin, believe the gospel, turn in faith to him. And so, folks, we need to not just tell people, oh, God exists, or who he is, uh, uh, and uh, he is the God-man in Christ, the Lamb of God, and why we need to, but actually call people to repent and believe. I alluded to it earlier in John three nineteen. The world is condemned. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so we need to preach the law, the Ten Commandments, something uh, uh, as well known as that, to those who are lost and say, you have violated, you have violated, and so have I. But because Christ kept it perfectly, all who truly turn from their own saving ways and turn to him as the only way and genuinely do so, in fact, are forgiven and become children of God. So, the lost need to know they're responsible and they're accountable. Even in their ignorance, Paul said, you are accountable, you're responsible to turn from your way and call upon the Lord. Folks, we know, we serve, we follow the true and living God who is knowable. And he has told us we are the ambassadors with the word of reconciliation. Let's be serious about that. I'm committed to that, uh, for that, and I have been. It's been an ebb and flow. It's been hot and cold sometimes. Or warmer and cooler, let me say it that way. Uh, But I know better, and you know better, relative to evangelism. If not you, then who? If not now, then when? Relative to sharing the gospel with this dark and decadent and depraved and damned world, we have the light of the gospel. Let's shine the light in a dark place. Lord, I'm thankful for this, your word, and the difference uh, it it has made and continues to make in my life. Uh, Lord, may I be serious about sharing you uh, with a world that uh, is growing more and more intolerant and, in fact, hostile. And maybe that is precisely what you Uh, intend for our culture to truly divide the the sheep and the goats so that there's a, a clear distinction between who knows you and believes and follows you and who doesn't. May we be those who stand on the Lord's side, trusting you, testifying of you, and Lord, just basking in the warmth of your presence and power, kindness, goodness toward us all our days. Use us, Lord, as ambassadors of the cross, as 
agents of reconciliation in this day so that we may um, see uh, the, uh, the harvest come in that you will uh, bring about, you will produce the fruit, and we'll rejoice in that uh, knowing that we've been used of the Lord in our lifetimes. And so bless this to our hearts. Uh, be glorified in our lives. Lord Jesus, in your name we do pray.